Welcome to the Coaching Badges podcast. Thanks for listening in. Joining me on the show tonight, my co-host Mark Anderson and regular contributors Mick Brown, Paul O'Reilly and Willie Tyrrell. Great to see you lads. Delighted to have you back on the pod tonight. We chat about the headlines from the Sporting Week on by. We'll also be discussing our coaching topic for the show. This week we'll be chatting about defending can't believe it's episode 12 in the overall series and we're only getting to defending now so really looking forward to that we're delighted that player stat data have joined us as our sponsor for season two big shout out to colin and all the team down there we're absolutely delighted to have them guys on board check out what they do at playerstatdata.com really really interesting initiative in terms of you know, understanding data and uh, player analysis. So taking it to a whole new level. So delighted to have you guys on board as sponsors. Thanks again. Later on, Mark Eckerly joins us as our guest. Amongst other things, we'll be chatting to Mark about player development in Canada and Mark's considerable experience as a well-traveled coach. Along with the other usual bits and pieces, we hope you'll enjoy the show. So Mark, what have you got for us from the world of sport this week? Something that's been caught my eye, especially, and I, I follow a guy called Derek Ray, who is an ESPN and a commentator, and he is the Bundesliga Scottish guy, but he's based out in America, and he does, he does a lot of feed out there. And it's got me thinking about managers, um, looking at Spurs and Mourinho and people calling for his heads, and looking at my own club, Lennon gone, and I know myself and Mick have, speak about, have spoken about this guy privately a few times, about a lot of old-school managers struggling in the modern game. I was reading something Derek Ray put up, and he spoke about the role of director of footballs and coach coaching and how in Germany there's a lot more now younger American coaches and manager, coaches coming into the game but the director of football as opposed to the MD of the club or the CEO are appointing these young coaches and one of the things that on the thread that he put up was that they had to whatever coach came in had to fit into the club's DNA and that the Germans see it as a bigger risk in employing a kind of maverick or a manager with a big track record that would come in maybe do a job for two years walk away or might not succeed, as opposed to taking a younger coach that would fit into the DNA of their club and how they want to coach. And that this sporting department, that the director of football heads up with all the data people in it and everything else, drive what the philosophy of the club is. Hence the opportunity for a lot of young coaches. So hence the likes of this guy, uh, Pellegrino Mazzarazzo, who was with Hoffenheim and is now with Stuttgart, who Stuttgart identified as someone that would fit into their uh, philosophy and their DNA and what they wanted the club and it's got on to a lot of the teams now that I mean, Jesse Marsh and all these other clubs that have now have these young especially American or quite forward thinking Eddie Howe was one at Bournemouth that, that I think management is actually changing I'd be interested to get people's viewpoints of are those kind of Alex Ferguson style managers who were massively successful at that time are they a dying breed and are we seeing now the birth of that younger director of football head coach going to roll that will drive what clubs are about. So that was that. That's got me thinking this week. I think Mark and Jeremy there, even regards players. Jeremy seemed to give players chances younger. It even just shows with the likes of Jude Bellingham and Jaden Sancho going. They all have a philosophy that you go play in Dortmund or Munich or Stuttgart or Hoffenheim. This is how we play and this is how we're set up and this is what our club is all about. Um, and I think you're spot on there. That's it's interesting. There's a lot of younger players leaving um, academies in the UK and going to Germany to develop which they have, they have no problem in selling players for big fees. Yeah. They seem to be able to recruit and churn all the way. And it's, it's just, it's, I think it's starting now, you see it in management as well, and coaching. Yeah, I think they're well ahead. I think Germany are so far ahead of England in terms of all that. But um, even with the managers in England, you still see the old school managers getting jobs. Mm. But it's not only the lower teams, just to keep them out of relegation. They're only 
because they might get a certain, they might get the 40 points as everybody's looking for. In Germany, it's the opposite. They take chances, they trust the young people and they trust the young players. Yeah. Which, as a football fan, I know which model I would prefer, and it's not the English one. So basically, like, so, so basically, like you're saying that the, the coach, the new up and coming coach, comes in to fit the club's philosophy rather than the club sort of fitting the coach's philosophy, really. That's the way it's going, then, is it? So if you look at Spurs, Spurs bringing in Mourinho, I don't think anybody would have sat there and said, oh, that's a perfect match after Pochettino and everybody else. That's a perfect match. Mourinho's going to play a kind of swashbuckling style of football that would suit Spurs and what they're all about. That's not what he does. And that's, that's not a problem, but that's why he's won trophies and built a reputation as one of the best managers. That's what he's built it on. But should you not, as a club, no matter what your level, say, if you're going to come and coach, we want you to come in and coach the way we would like to be as a team and a play because our academies feed into that. Everything that we do on the pitch feeds into that and they're the kind of players that we kind of attract. Yeah, Liverpool did it for years. They recruited from the boot room. So they shared the philosophy of the of the club. They knew the players. They knew what way they wanted to play. They had success for years and years with that, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, definitely. I, I think it makes sense, Mark. But I often question that, like, when you remove the manager from the first team, the knock-on effect that has in the academy, if you have tried to have all your teams playing a particular way, you know, um, I remember speaking to a, a young player who's at Southampton uh, last year, and he was just, he stressed so importantly how the manager from the top of the first team down, right the way down to the teams in the academy, has them all playing the same way. I think that's brilliant. But it, it is interesting to see. I'm not sure, again, if there's a right or wrong answer on it. I, I listened to Jurgen Klopp's book recently, and they talked about that at Dortmund, um, the various managers that had come and gone over the years. They did try and fit their, their managers to their philosophy, um, which I thought was interesting. And they deliberately didn't go for particular managers who had a proven way of playing a different style or formation. So like they, they seem to have been doing that for years. Certainly would be a, a bigger thing in, in the organizational structure in American sports. There's no one point of failure. Like there's several layers to how teams are run from the owners down through general managers to all the divisional heads, to the different coaching heads, to the head coach. So like there could be 20 people involved in the decisions that run the team. So there's lots of different models. I do think you're seeing that traditional or old fashioned, you know, manager model changing, you know, where the manager makes all the decisions. I think there's far too much at stake now that, you know, you don't put all your eggs in one basket and you do get that kind of data driven decision making from lots of different people. And um, so it is interesting to see how it evolves. Again, a lot of it, I guess, down to money and resourcing and, and how you do that. But I certainly would be a fan of trying to establish clearly, like Barcelona, as an example, clearly establishing your style of play and then trying whoever's in the building has to live to that style of play over years. I think that's good for the fans. I think it's good for longevity. It allows you to buy into a brand, you know, and, and a style and a philosophy rather than having that change every time the head coach changes. You I know? also think so, yeah. as well, like, I mean, for anybody with ambitions and we can relate it back to, to I suppose, either here in Ireland, if you're a young coach and you see more in clubs adopting that, obviously there's going to be more opportunity for you to actually get a job and get a position in football um, from what you've trained and worked for years to get to. So I, I think, personally myself, I just think football, it's, it's coming to the next... He obviously had it early days with some individual clubs, as Mick said, with Liverpool, Barcelona as well. But... Yeah, I think there'll be more, more and more clubs. It's something that they, it would benefit them long term. I, I definitely agree with that. But I do think that everybody has to be aligned to what the philosophy is, whatever you do by Inter. Because it has happened in the past where you've had a manager, or I remember famously at Liverpool at one point, co-managers and a director of football, and they're all at odds with each other. So, you know, you have tension within the actual people. Say that I know Liverpool famously had um, a group that signed players, you know, a signing group. 
And sometimes players were brought in to the organization who the manager didn't want, which I could never understand how that could work. You know, so I do think whatever model you, you do settle on, there's merit to having more than one voice or one opinion making those big decisions. And yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's going to evolve over the next number of years, but it'll be interesting to see. So look on now to our coaching topic every week on the pod. Uh, we'll try and get into the weeds on a coaching topic and, and just discuss the detail of something. This week, it's defending uh, that we'll be tackling often undervalued elements uh, in terms of its importance to the whole season or sessions or games. So lads, um, looking for your opinions on this, what, what is defending? It's one word that so many things in it though. So, so many things. Like When you think about defending... One v one situations, defending as units. You defend crosses, defensive heading, dealing with overloads, preventing shots, crosses, true balls. It involves pressing, dropping, delaying attacks, dealing with pressure, recovery runs, challenging interceptions. There's so so much in it for for one word. And um, you know, people would argue that a lot of it, it's been neglected somewhat um, in the, in the modern game. And I think there's um, there's quite a number of reasons for that, as we'll probably discuss now. So look, yeah, there, there's a ton in it, making fairness, right? And I agree, we'll, we'll get into maybe what the modern thinking is in terms of coaching defending. But, you know, um, as we always do, let's take it back to the start. You know, if you're starting to work with young kids, you know, six, seven, eight years of age, and you're just introducing that whole thing of attacking and defending, you know, what, what are you saying to kids in terms of defending? Like for me, the, the basic thing is you explain to them, you're, you're trying to stop the opposition from scoring in your goal. So you're defending your goal. And, and that just beds down that principle of that's the whole idea. So attacking is your team trying to score and defending is trying to stop the other team from scoring. Yeah, and, then and, in, and then individually, it's it, it's your 1v1 defender, which is yeah. which is hugely important for, for kids. And it, it's, it's quite a, a complicated process when, when you think about it. When you think of all the steps that are involved in 1v1 defending, like you close down quickly, assess, assess the opponent's touch. Is it good? Slow down. If it's bad, can you nick it? Side on, low body, low center of gravity, good body position, show one way and win when certain. So there's, there's quite a lot in that for a, for a kid. But constantly having 1v1s and 2v2 games, they will pick a lot of that up themselves without you having to, to break it down piece by piece. I know a, a few coaches use these buzzwords and, and I think Celtic use it as well when they're coaching the, the fundamentals in, 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 of defending. It'd be something like delay, deny, destroy, rather than going through the whole process, which is which I've just shown there, is, is quite complicated. Or I say quick, then slow, then low. Something like that, just to give the, the player an yeah, yeah. idea of, of what, what's, what's involved. But just loads and loads of 1v1s. Um, great, great way to start. Um, it, it's a good point just to try and simplify it in terms of the language because a lot, a lot of the time you see young kids when they start defending, they, their initial attempts are just to run into the opponent. You, you'll see that lots in small side of games where players just run into each other and knock each other over. So they don't understand you know, that they're, they're maybe potentially causing a foul or something like that. So it is just to get them to understand about getting to the opponent understanding that as they get older, the, the, the spacing is one of the most important things for me. You know, how often have you seen a quick player run so fast that he can't slow down in time and, and the player runs by him or somebody who, who runs and stops too far away and, and gives the opponent time to turn and run at them. So the whole spacing thing, again, as they get older, just trying to understand, you're, you're trying to just delay your opponent or nick the ball or 
But look, it's 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 brilliant. It's an actual art in itself. And I know I'm an ex-defender. I've harped on about it long enough. I can't believe we got to like podcast 12 or something before we started talking about defending. But it, it's so important. But I don't see the love for defending in many modern players. I, I don't see that. It, we've talked about it loads, the excitement when people are defending. It's almost seen as a chore. So look, so now you've got your your kids understanding at least the basics, right? So um, yeah, just to go back on that, it's interesting the words that you use there, and I think that's part of part of probably the challenge, the love of defending. And I, I think it's a, I mean, as as more generations watching football, and and it's all about that goal, it's all about the striker, and yet they win games. But the whole terminology around defend is that kind of negative words, and I think it's a certain sort of player, a certain type of kid actually revels in that disruptive of stopping something. Um, and I think that that's part of the reason why I go back to some of my, some of the best defenders, Paul McGrath, Baresi, Maldini, people like that, Costa Corda, some of the Italian guys, they just had this something about that they just wanted to stop and disrupt the beautiful part of the game. And like you said, they got just as much out of that as someone scoring a hat-trick or a worldie. So I think, I think the language around, and I think also how people describe defenders as a ball playing centre-back and all like that, that's, that's crap. Every defender should be able to play football. The guys back then could play football. It wasn't something new. So I think it's just how people have described that position. It's probably lost some of the appeal for kids. Yeah. And I look, Mark, I know you talk about language a lot. And definitely the, the language and how you frame anything can, can psychologically impact how you regard it. But I remember watching, I think it was Juventus or something, a number of years uh, in a row in the Champions League and seeing their defenders celebrate defending. Incredible. The only team I can remember that do it, like high-fiving each other and pumping each other up for defending well. I mean, I don't see that in England. I don't see that in English football. I don't see it in Irish football. It's just, as I said, it's it's the dirty work and the dog work. And it's called all kinds of derogatory terms. But it's such an important part of the game. We, we touched on the phases, uh, I think, last week. Like, it's one of the primary phases of the game. There is only attacking and defending and the transitions. So it's so important. Will, you might talk to me a little bit about the intensity of your sessions. I know you're always big on the, the high intensity of sessions, which is brilliant. But in terms of defending, you know, how, how do you build to that full tilt pressure when you're teaching defending? It has to start off the exact opposite, doesn't it? When you're, especially from a younger age, when you're doing one v one stuff, it has to you have to slow it right down, do a lot of sort of walkthroughs and slow demonstrations. Do I mean to make sure that the body positions are right? Because I say that that takes a that takes a long time to master. Believe it or not, and you see a lot of senior pros and people earning big money, and they still can't get it right. And if you play for what 10, 15, 20 years. So, I mean, in, in my opinion, you start off slow and then you walk it up for maybe 1v1s into 2v2s. Then sort of you go 3v2s or 4v3s where you're working on overloads and seeing how they cope in those sort of situations. And I suppose as you go up to the ages, then you start to incorporate units. So, for example, it could be, say, it could be a front five versus a back four and a goalkeeper. Do I mean in a, in, a, in a phase of play, maybe? And you, you can walk on it from there. And then obviously then, you know, you go from your back four you can incorporate your, maybe you're sitting two if you're playing a four, two, three, one. Or eventually you walk it up where it goes through each unit and then full team. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I I think you have to bed down your basics and then from there build. And then one thing that's really important for me is so you, st- you start with your individual. So Mick mentioned the body position and giving them those little trigger words, you know, to distract or delay or destroy or whatever, whatever terminology you find that works. But after that, then it's understanding just the actual technical side of the maybe the pressure cover balance. So understanding that the, the, the first player or the nearest man to the ball is the pressure and he determines a lot of what happens next. So whether he, you know, forces them in one direction or goes full tilt to press, 
that then he can't do that in isolation. So, you know, the pressure happens first, the cover comes next, and that's just somebody to back up the pressure in case the pressure is beaten. So if the first point of pressure is beaten, there's a covering player that becomes your, your next point of pressure. And then finally, that the balance is essentially the guy who covers the guy given the cover. You know, so like make it as simple as you can, but it's back to that not working in isolation. So one point of pressure gets cover or support from his mate. His mate is is backed up by a, another point of cover. So you, all of a sudden you have three layers for somebody to get through, to penetrate you. And then if the ball shifts from that area, the whole team shifts and it begins again. So it, it's, it's really interesting, right? But it's not attractive. So like, um, Paul, do you have any ideas? Like we've talked often about how defending, you know, can be boring and it's not the, it's not the sexy side of football. You know, everybody wants to be a striker. So is there any way that we can make it more attractive to players when we are, you know, coaching defending? You can, yeah. It's, it's defending is not the same as the, as the glamorous part, obviously, of side of the game. You know, as strikers get all the plaudits with all the goals and the flashing. That's why the strikers get the bigger wages, I suppose. But to make a reward, you've got them, get the team to understand to work as a unit. You know, get them all working together and how to react and give them all their roles and responsibilities as a team. Because the cornerstone of every good team is having a good defence. So you've got to show them that if they, if they all work together, they get bigger rewards, you know, the, especially now defending starts in the front. Yeah. But the strikers have a bigger role to play than a lot of them, you know. Most modern now strikers in the Premiership, they are the first line of defence and you have to be defender now, really, attacking as well, coming through the midfield. So the, the most glamorous way to build it up for players, to try and sell it to players, really, to want to defend, is you probably win more as a team, you know. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, I know it's hard for, for some kids to get their head around. You're, you're saying to them that if you defend more and win the ball more, you're going to attack more. So, you know, do put in the graft, get the ball back, then you're attacking because players do like to attack. You know, most players certainly like to attack. Mick, you might talk to me a little bit about the competitive elements to defending. So how how can you make it a little bit more competitive to build in that feeling that when you're defending well, you're achieving something. So an attacker knows he's done well when he scores. So how does a defender know that they've done well? Well, praise is, is is the first one. Do, do, do we praise defenders enough when when they do something really good? Like you said, a, a, a attackers get you know if, even someone taking a player out, out wide and they get the cross in. It may not be the great cross, but they generally get a you know well done, good stuff. Defender does something simple like he he reads a ball and it looks nothing, and he, he, the danger is snuffed out before it's even it's even happened. You know so. I think as coaches, we've, we've got to, um, particularly at younger ages, we, we've got to reward defenders and um, with praise yeah. and make them feel like they're not being, they're not being ignored, that their good work is being recognised, and and making other players realise that as well. That look at what he has done. What's what he what what good defending does for the team, as Paul just said there. We get the ball back. We can go go and yeah. attack. Also, make uh, defenders are the first form of attack as well. You know, so you can look at it that side as well. You know, you give them that praise. Get them to play out, get them to start the attacks as well, you know. So that's just probably not more attacking, really. But um, no, you're right. The way of just rewarding them, you know. I I played with a midfielder years ago, and he was he was incredibly talented. Like this guy was one of the most talented players I ever ever saw play the game. And anytime any defender did that and well, he'd say magic, right? And he just always it was a habit he had, and he'd say magic, magic. And the defenders used to feel really good playing with this guy. And I remember years later, as we got older, and I'd say, you know, why do you say magic? You know, and, and he'd say, I don't know fucking that about defending, but I know I need to keep these lads G'd up. You know what I mean? So because they were just winning the ball to give it to him. So he said, I just recognize that when I'd say little buzzwords like magic, 
the defenders got a little bit of a puff in their chest and, and they felt good about themselves. So we said, I noticed that it works. So I just kept saying it. And it became a kind of buzzword of his over the years. Yeah. But I, it always sticks with me. He was one of the first ever players that I played with that recognized that encouraging the defenders, however that was, and his little word was magic, was just to give him the ball. All he wanted was the ball more. You know what I mean? Wanted, but, uh, that's a motion. Yeah. the defense calf. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly why he was doing it. I tell you, it worked because it's, it stuck with me and I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> so, yeah. look, in, ter- in terms of the psychology of that, Mark, we often talk about, you know, the psychological side of the game and total, you know, putting players outside of their comfort zone. So, how do you think we test players, you know, or challenge players mentally when defending? I was reading about this actually uh, the other day. If you go back to Arrigo Saki and his AC Milan team, Back in the eighties and nineties, legends, I absolutely do. And he, I'm not saying he came up with it, but one of the things he used to do was, uh, for training sessions, he would put five against ten because he worked on the principle that if he could get his players to adapt to defend correctly and uh, hone their ability and techniques against ten, going into match day and going into games against against two and three would be a doddle for them. And he yeah, yeah. worked. And again, it's just it's it's coaching those techniques and putting putting players outside of their comfort zone in training and in those situation so that when it comes to match day they've got that calmness about them so they've got those leadership abilities and they know where their position is meant to be so it makes it easier for them setting them up to succeed as opposed to not preparing them to deal with situations in the game so I think that's really really important I definitely agree with that I I agree with what Mark said there I mean definitely overloading players like a defensive unit in training so say for example if you have your goalkeeper back four and sitting two you might put them up maybe against eight or nine do you know what I mean? So it could be, say, you're seven against nine, ever, but maybe you might have two players of the attacking team, maybe two centre-backs that are just under there to start playing, but it's just to get the ball moving quicker, to make it more game-realistic, to get the defensive unit working harder, do you know what I mean? To try get to create those holes. So then you have, that. there's your coaching topics there. It's easier to coach defending if they're being overworked, do you know what I mean? And overloaded, where you can see those gaps, and that's what they're looking for, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's a good point because... For me, then, when you do stuff like that, Will, all of a sudden, as a coach, you're starting to look for things like, so you've built up your intensity now, so it's full pressure. You've overloaded the attackers to give them, you know, an advantage. So now your defenders have to prioritize the threats, make better and quicker decisions. Uh, And stuff like this comes into it for me. So, you know, when they lose possession, where's the recovery runs? So what are the angles that are recovery runs if they're not pressing the ball? Man versus space is always a, a great argument for me because, you know, you'll get the cynic who will say, ah, oh, space never scored a goal. Yeah, but a defender has to put himself in a position where one, back to the pressure cover balance argument where he's offering cover to his mate, but two, he's checking his shoulders to see, well, who is the threat coming into the space that he's close by? So, you know, because very quickly when the ball shifts in the modern game, you can become the nearest player to the ball. So you could be the, the last player away from the ball in one instant and it's pinged diagonally across the pitch and now you are the nearest point of pressure. So you have to be aware of where the threat is in terms of the space. And open body positions. We talk about open body positions a lot in terms of receiving the ball when we have it, but open body positions in defending is vital. Like how often do you see poor defending where somebody comes around the back of a defender and they, it looks like they're not even aware that that person is there? And they appear, like it, it happened in a game we watched recently. A guy drifts in at the back post, scores a goal. And you're kind of saying, how did the defender not see that? Because he just wasn't aware of what was behind him. So your body positioning in terms of defending is vital. And, and I remember years ago, um, it was actually Mari Price, who when I was only a kid, I was only 15 or 16, he would have been a, a coach with the Irish International Schoolboys, teaching us about putting our body, so 
drawing a line between where the ball was and the middle of the goal, and then trying to put our body somewhere on that line. So you were always in a reasonable defensive position because you were blocking the goal. And then every subsequent movement off that was from where the ball went and, and always been aware of where the goal was. So there's so much in it in terms of that. So we often talk to players about scanning when they're trying to receive. It's just as important to scan where they're defending, just to be aware of your environment, what's around you, goal, ball, opponents. It, it's just constant decisions been made. And I, I and then communication as well, Gav, isn't it? Oh, you mean? So you might you might talk a little more about that, Willie. That is that to me is the cornerstone of everything. It underpins everything about defending. Yeah, communication is key. Just even an example, like if a ball's out with a right winger and you know your left your left side centre half or your both your centre half is looking at the ball. So I mean, and there might be a bit of a gap between them. Their, their distances mightn't be correct, and then a ten runs off a six, but the six doesn't. So I mean, the, the six doesn't tell the centre backs that the ten's coming. All of a sudden, then he just goes in between them, and the cross comes in, bang, it's a goal. That's just an example. They go all over the pitch. So I mean, so as the ball's getting transferred, say from your, you know, there, say when there's midfielders and it goes to the left winger, that you're getting your right back out there early, and then you're letting him know. Like the game plan might be to show him back inside. Do I mean the, the, the two wingers might be quick, so they mightn't want to show him down the line because they might be quicker than say you're two full backs. So you might want to show him back in inside. So need to sort of you know be on top of things is like with communication, no matter where it is on the pitch, you have to like whether it's your you know if the ball gets transferred and the ball comes back inside that like the communication has to pass on yeah. just from one side. Do you know what I mean? There, there's so many rules, because, well, guidelines, and, and that it depends on, on what type of defending you're doing. But for me, I think I've always said to players, good defending, you don't always have to win the ball. And I, I think players need to recognise that, that, you know, most of the time, of course, you, you've got to win tackles sometimes, but most of the time, the, the, the better decision is to stand up, slow them down and let people get back around and cover. And I think if, if you can get that into players that you don't have to dive in. And it's one thing I hate is I hate seeing players going to ground when they, when they don't have to, because once yeah. you're down, you're out of it. You know, so my golden rule would be you don't always have to win the ball. So I'd make just on that, the going to ground, that should be really, should be a last ditch effort. That should be the last resort, a goal line clearance, uh, whatever, you know. Jamie yeah. Carragher made a career off at last ditch tackles, maybe because he was in opposition earlier. But for the last ditch tackle, you know, should be only a last resort. Like years ago, there was lots of, you know, people physically just clattering into each other and slide tackles. And, and you know, that, that was time and place. I think now, certainly, we would try and teach, you know, young defenders to stay on their feet. Because to your point, Mick, when you're on your arse on the ground, there's very little else you can do. So if you don't make that tackle, it's very hard to recover. At least if you're on your feet and a player gets by you, you have a chance to recover because you're still on your feet. You're still able to run. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, the other thing is as well, the rules have changed as well. So last ditch tackles and sort of going in on the deck, more than likely going to give away free kicks the whole time. It doesn't mean the game's changed so much over the last few years, hasn't it? Listen, that's a great point. And, and all the more reason to teach defending more now, because years ago, you probably got away with a lot more physicality than you would now. So now you have to be an even better defender. You have to be better at where you position your body. I often talk to young defenders about their, their first foot placement. So, you know, if a, if a speedy winger is trying to push the ball by you, your first step slightly across his body without fouling him is as good as any slide tackle because now he has to run around you. So, you know, understanding where you place your first foot in terms of pushing off, understanding how to use your arms without fouling. 
Like your arms can be a really powerful weapon in defending in terms of just holding people off and forcing them in a direction that you want them to go. So like there, there's lots of those small little details that I think players have neglected over the years or coaches have neglected teaching them because there was for a number of years an obsession with just attacking, flying fullbacks, everybody committing forward. And it led for really exciting football. I know the number of goals scored in Premier League games has increased over the years as the game got quicker and quicker. But I do often wonder, did they just neglect that basic balance of getting the mix between defending and attacking right? So I think you're seeing some teams redress that now a little more with more emphasis on holding midfielders, kind of protecting and screening back forwards. But I, I do still see an awful lot of channels in football exposed because people are playing too high. So look, lots to talk about, boys. Really good can I, stuff. Can I just go in on that, Gavin, with regards to real changes? I, I think the, the effect it has had on defending, you could argue whether it's made it more difficult, but it's certainly given defenders more challenges because of the, the new rules. Like, back lines can't push up as before in the knowledge that players in behind were offside. You know, so the, the, the offside rule has has, has has changed that. And and uh, because of that, you know, we need defenders who are, are capable of reacting to specific circumstances. As you said, with one minute you could be away from the ball, furthest away, next minute you're you're the nearest to it. You get full full backs now are, are wing backs and the cynical fouls, as Willie said, are, are punished harshly. And players are terrified to tackle in and around the box now because of the, the rules. <laughs> any any tackle now is almost a, a penalty. And um it's also argue you know that the obsession with playing out in the back has, has changed the qualities required of defenders. They do look for a ball playing centre halves at probably at the expense of a really good good defender. It's hard to get the mix right. I, I would think Van Dyke is probably the best example when he's fully fit of the perfect mix and that physically he's six foot four five, he's quick and he can play. But funny, one of our guests from Series 1, Adrian Harvey, made a really interesting point about, so over the years, the defenders got bigger and bigger and taller and taller. And now they seem to be, you know, coming back down the other way to get quicker and quicker. So, you know, modern defenders now at the highest level probably don't look like the big beasts they were years ago. And they are quicker and they stay on their feet better and they can play. So, like, yeah, look, it's an interesting evolution. I think it's going to continue to evolve as the game, the rules change. But I, I definitely think there's massive areas there for coaches to adopt and make their, their players all over the pitch better defenders. You know, we didn't even get into talking about the famous, like, attacker's tackle, where generally an attacker, when he goes to defend, fouls somebody. So, yeah, I think everybody has to get better at that. But look, for me, really, really important thing. Uh, I, I read during the week and it reminded me of a great quote from Alex Ferguson that I think he famously said, attack wins your games and defense wins your titles. So like a really, really important element of your overall team and structure and uh, regardless of the level you're playing at. So really good stuff, way, boys. I, I love the way you as a defender had to get that in at the end. <laughs> I had to. I've, Mark, I've been waiting 12 episodes to talk about defending. <laughs> do, you, do you think, here's a question for you, do you think that with, with the budgets that clubs have, and the ability to bring in players on a whim has disrupted, and even squad rotation has has disrupted the um, the cohesion that is needed to have a really good back four or a back three. And one hundred percent, one hundred percent, definitely. Yeah, the, the famous Arsenal side, you know, that one went the Tony Adams and Lee yeah, Dixon, Nigel Winterburn, or not? What was it? Martin Keown, was it? Winterburn. Who was the left foot? Winterburn, was it? Winterburn, yeah. That, that famous Arsenal side. Like, the, the keeper and back four never changed. It was yeah, changing also, the midfield and up top. and But that, that back five played together week in, week out. And you do develop. Game's getting a lot quicker now as 
yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot more injuries now. Isn't it? Now you seem to be getting injured every second week now. So I don't know what else to do with the game getting quicker. Or, yeah, you know, that's, that's, yeah, that's so exactly. Yeah. Look at Liverpool this year. I think they've had 19 or 20 or, or something centre half partnerships. But that 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 cannot lead to cohesion. Yeah, I don't think you'll see the likes of the Arsenal back four ever again. Stuff like yeah. that playing week in week out. But like the likes have touched on already, the game's far quicker now. So like your centre halves, like they have to be really mobile now. You, you touched on Van Dijk, Laporte, Diaz doesn't mean yeah. any, any Lindelof, any of them. Look, look at them like I mean, they're all athletes now. So I think you're right, Paul. I think there's a lot more injuries nowadays. And yeah, I'm talking about, about centre halves don't be tall. Like heading's dying, so there's no heading in the game anymore. So centre half doesn't have to be winning big aerial challenges as much anymore. You know what I mean? True, so yeah. are changing. I think even your goalkeeper plays a big part in it as well. And even like even even now, like it's like it's picking between two goalkeepers all the time about who starts. It's it don't get the same continuity. I mean, I think in my own time, my own side said like we've had three keepers on rotation. It's like a lucky dip who's gonna start. And if you're back four in front of that, doesn't have any confidence there, that leads into the defending as well. So yeah, I think it's square square pegs for round holes sometimes. Yeah, lots of good stuff, lads. We're definitely having another chat about defending. We've only scratched. We've only scratched the surface. So look, that's that's brilliant, boys. Uh, we'll move on. Thanks for all your input there. Well on, fellas. Moving on to our guest of the week in conjunction with Player Stat Data. Every episode, we try to bring guests on to offer their perspective on the world of football or sport or coaching. And this week, we're delighted to have Mark Eckerley on the pod. Mark is currently coaching at the Vancouver Whitecaps in Canada. He's also the head coach of uh, the girls program at Langara College. He's got his UEFA A license and his elite youth A license. Uh, and we're delighted to have him on the show. So, Mark, um, it's great to have you on. Uh, we met in 2019, if I remember rightly. We were doing our elite youth A license together. Uh, and you were telling me at the time that since 2015, uh, or there, thereabouts, over a period of about five years, you travelled over to Ireland nine times to do your, your coaching badges through FAI Coach Ed. So you might just explain that a little bit to us, you know, why why you felt you needed to come to Ireland to do your badges. Yeah, Gav, well, hey, thanks for, thanks for having me on. Um, it was actually 2014 to 2019 um, where I spent, where I took eight trips across across the Atlantic Ocean um, uh, to Ireland um, and another trip to Budapest. But, you know, for me, it's quite simple you know, on, on why you do that sort of thing. Number one is I believe North Americans need to challenge themselves abroad um, and really test their knowledge and, and test their teaching ability in a very unique and perhaps uncomfortable environment. But also I like to combine, and, and most importantly, I like to combine family, football, and fun. So the fun bit being travel. And for me and my family, we like to invest in travel and why not do it and jump on some courses at the same time. That's great answer. Great approach. And were, were your family with you on, on all of those trips or most of them? Oh, great question. No, um, only two. <laughs> uh, <laughs> only two of those. Um, my wife didn't really like that. But, um, you know, for, for the Budapest trip, we went, um, we went Budapest uh, into Vienna, into Salzburg, um, and, then, and then back home. Oh, um, but on one, but on one of the on one of the trips on the UEFA A course, what we did was we did a ten day road trip across Ireland, and it was fantastic. Just it's Ireland is a beautiful country, beautiful people, and I have uh, a great love and, and respect for for the Irish culture. Really, very interesting. Very interesting you say that because um, I spent 
10, 10 years working abroad. Um, and I don't think I actually ever appreciated what Ireland had to offer till I actually moved abroad. And as I was even talking to my mum yesterday and I was saying, when I grew up, my dad used to play all traditional Irish music. And I used to get a pain in my arse going, what is he listening to? This is crap. And then I moved away. And within within a year of moving away, I was sitting there teary-eyed playing the same <laughs> stuff. And now I have it on my Spotify playlist. But yeah, very interesting. It's great though. It's, on, it's obvious talking to you and maybe you can give us before you answer the next question a little bit of a background about what you do and where you are um, and what your role is um, and then I want to touch base on some of the things that we were talking just uh, before the pod so maybe just a few words on yourself and who you are where you're from and because um, I know we may know you but some of our listeners probably won't even know where Canada is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I sure hope they do because it's a country of five different time zones. Um, but uh, we can't uh, get one right. You mad? <laughs> <laughs> I forgot uh, to mention that it's morning for you over there. It's evening for us here. No, listen, man, this is my this head's is, gone already. We, we thought Adrian Harvey was international in Bristol. This <laughs> yeah, is this is a whole a new level. <laughs> Yeah, you're talking to a global global man here, global man. But, um, yeah, so I, I grew up in Chicago. Um, so uh, my first citizenship was obviously American. I, I am a Canadian citizen now, um, having moved to Canada, Vancouver in particular, in, in 2013. Um, I've had a variety of roles over my 15-year coaching career, with which one particular highlight was coaching in Ghana. And again, you know, I, I spoke about fun. For me, fun is defined as football and travel. Okay, and that was that was an eye-opening experience coaching in Ghana. It quickly taught me that I didn't know much about the game, and so that really launched my uh, in, intentional and very deliberate way of of seeking knowledge. Okay, um, but my current roles—I um, have three current roles at the moment. One is actually a business manager of a small biotechnology company that actually produces the technology for the Pfizer vaccine. Um, I love you. I yeah, love you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I love you too, Mark. But um, uh, uh, second role is a Vancouver Whitecaps U17 assistant coach. Um, I've been in that role since January, but I've been with the club for about three years now. And lastly, I'm the head coach of the women's soccer program at Langara College. Excellent. Um, I've never had my, um, and anybody that listens to the pod will know I always throw references to America and North America. Um, lucky enough to have spent an awful lot of time visiting there and working out in San Francisco and Miami and, and traveling around. And, and my aspirations would always be to go and coach over there. So it's interesting that when you talk about, um, earlier on before the part about challenging yourself by putting yourself outside your comfort zone. And I got, the minute like picking up, even talking to you, it's, it's obvious you've got this growth mindset um, and you're obviously very different in, or you have a different approach to probably coaching and how you interact with your players. One thing that, we said, that you touched on was earlier on in our conversation before we started was the 4Hs exercise. I'd love our listeners to know a little bit more about that and maybe you could explain it. What, you, what your thought process behind it, how it looks, and what, how you involve it. First of all, it was a great team building activity um, and it did not actually originate with me. So a player brought it to my attention and say, Mark, I really do think we need to do these four H's at the time of COVID. We're not really connecting with people. And, and then so she gave me a little background on it and she got it from the Pittsburgh Steelers. So the entire staff, the entire team, what they did was they, they sat down and they discussed their four H's, which are history, heroes, heartaches, and hopes. So within the Langara College environment, what we did was, okay, Reiko, who is a phenomenal footballer, who is a great person, and she's a mo the, the most incredible leader I think I've ever met. And um, so she went first and we let her lead the way. 
then it was the staff, and then it was all the other players. There were really only two conditions though um, with this exercise. One, take your time, don't rush it. So if it went two minutes, it goes two minutes, but if it went 30 minutes, no problem. The second condition being, you must be vulnerable. You must speak of true heartaches where it really pulls at your heartstrings. And, it, and if you feel like you're going to tear up and cry, then you know you're doing something right. Okay, so luckily it was a huge success because people were vulnerable, showcased that strength of what vulnerability really is, and, and it connected us as a group. And we did that all over Zoom. The next session that we had on the field, they just, they, even though we couldn't, they, they wanted to hug each other and, and, and really just come together. And it was such a phenomenal team building activity. I would recommend it to any football club, any business organization to really bring people together, especially after a time like COVID. Brilliant. Brilliant. I love that. I mean, I'm, I, I was telling Gav and I've referenced that in the pod. I bought a series of books and I've, I followed the guys at What Drives Winning in the US, which work with an awful lot of colleges and they've done similar exercises. I do think for it to succeed, you really need to have that honesty as a coach as well as players, because there's no point, no point in you expecting your players to open up if you just want to back off. But I do actually think in North America, probably kids are probably a little bit more open than maybe even dealing with some Irish kids. I, I mean, I, I remember dealing even with talking to the guys at Glasgow Celtic at the time, and they were saying trying to get those kids to open up um, and make eye contact even was the starting point for that. So yeah, I'd be interested to, I'd be interested to do something of like that as an exercise because I'm a firm believer in culture and driving those values early on so that everybody knows how they're going to be held accountable and buy into themselves. That, that sounds really good. Can I just clarify again? It, it was history, heroes, heartache, yes. and hope. Yep. Yeah, very good. Okay, cool. Right, that's right up your street, Mark. <laughs> I love that. Listen, I like that. I like that kind of holistic approach, and, and the game is definitely changing in terms of how we're, we're now engaging with our players. So, Mark, give us your own thoughts on how you think uh, those attitudes towards a more holistic model of player development has changed you know, in, in your time in coaching. I would really, I would really love to think that it's going in the right direction, and I and I really do think it is. Um, however, um, I was recently on a professional development workshop, um, you know, with uh, a very prominent club uh, across the world, and we, you know, we started talking about soft skills for coaches and what that means for player development. And his response to that was simply this: It's not about kissing uh, the backsides of players. And so I, you know, with, you know, with that, it's like, you don't really understand what soft skills are. Um, and, you know, to, and to, to define soft skills, essentially leadership skills, emotional intelligence, self-awareness, and essentially mastering the self. And if you're not mastering the self in no way, should you be in a position to manage others and yeah. to lead others? That is certainly my opinion. Um, so I was disappointed to hear that, but I really do think um, the people that do get it, they really understand the human element. And what I mean by that is simply, if you believe in a player, they will go above and beyond for you and they will, uh, they will surprise you, both individually and collectively. And I think that's, that's something that people, I think, are slowly beginning to understand. But uh, I, I think we have a long way to go. I would agree with that. And it is changing. And, and we see it over here changing. But there still are. And don't, and don't get me wrong. We don't want to preach to anybody. But there still are people who would deliver, you know, their way of coaching differently to how I might think is the way to do it. So I, I can't say they're right or wrong. But I, I would often look at it and go, OK, that might be the way I'd approach it. But definitely from my time, and I'm, I'm coaching around the same length of time as you, Mark, about 15 years. I remember back to, to one of my very first, you know, team talks in a dressing room with the guys. And it was just 
person just effing and blinding because that's all I knew. That's all had ever been done to me as a player. So I just presumed that was the way you coached and you just, you know, kick the door in, get in there, start roaring and shouting. And I was like, well, thankfully started to realize that that doesn't work anymore. And it, it has improved over recent years to the point now where we do engage with our, where we try to engage with our players a lot more off the pitch as well as on it. You know, to find out who they are and what are their values and what are their hopes and dreams and, and really try and understand them more as people. And I find it works for me better than another way. But I guess you're right. Everybody's different. But um, and I do think we have a way to go on that yet. But uh, I, I hope it's improving. I'm just just curious to hear that it's it's as much a problem in Canada as I would regard it to be in Ireland. I, you know, I, I would hope, um, you know, what, you know, at the Whitecaps, what, um, you know, the head coach and I do, um, we assess ourselves and each other on our, on our essentially our role as a coach. Right. And so we assess ourselves in three different ways, connection, knowledge and teaching ability. And that's day to day. That's over a six week training block. That's over the a yearly plan. And nice. if you cannot connect with them as a person, I believe you, you can't coach. And, and I know that's, um, that's not going to be a very popular position position, but um, I, I really do think if we're going to start going towards a holistic model, we need to put our two, we need to put two feet on the ground and make sure we take a really strong stance on, on what it means to have a holistic model, because I think there is some confusion about, Hey, what soft skills are, and does that mean you're catering to players? But if, if you're catering to player catering to players and you're not being demanding to players, but yeah. I, I would actually say this is a true high performance environment when you're talking about connection kindness and competencies so i would say if you cannot be kind and you can't be honest in a very tactful way then you're actually incompetent from a social from a social perspective and if you you can't speak to players in a way that in a way that they can hear you you're you're just a dinosaur i think that's excellent i think that's absolutely 100 percent. i would agree with that and i think people confuse those soft skills with being soft yourself and giving in, but uh, and especially when you talk about emotional intelligence and empathy, and people think be, when you, if you're being anyway um, shown any kind of empathy that you're giving in or being soft, it's not. Yeah. It's about meeting people where they are at that time, um, and it's about understanding when you can push and when you need to back off, and that's the same in business as it is a, as on a football team or any sports team. There's certain times when if it's a young player under pressure with exams, it's best to hold off and put an extra pressure on them. Um, and then there's other times when he can be challenged and pushed or she. Um, and it's the same with business. And people, I think the world has changed. I see it in kitchens all the time. Um, how I was taught in kitchens years ago was very different than how we would teach our chefs. And it's the same with footballers. They're much more about instant gratification. They're much more about why am I doing this? Give me the emotional or the connection and the story behind it. And they're much more about, you know, I want that information and that data. We spoke about this, you know, Nightcap, about yeah. football is now becoming more data and data driven. But all of them want to understand why they do things. Why? Like, why am I doing things? And it kind of leads me to the question about, we talked an awful lot there about emotional intelligence and those soft skills, but language and culture is absolutely huge. What do you think, like, for, for young players in the game these days, how does that look or why is it so important? You know, well, for me, you know, when it comes down to it, I think it that goes beyond just young players. I think it goes for everybody. And, you know, and I think in order to be an effective, effective communicator on the pitch, you have to be an effective communicator off the pitch as well. Um, yeah. So I think language is extremely important. And I'd like to give an example of, uh, you know, what that sort of looked like for me um, as a, as a UEFA A candidate um, coaching in Ireland um, as a North American fella, you know, running a phase of play and, 
you know, we're doing attacking, you know, attacking in the attacking half. Okay. And create and finish phase. And, you know, the, the opposition, you know, one particular player wasn't getting in, in into their four, 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 one, four, one block. And um, so, you know, I asked him, you know, I asked him politely, I asked him, Hey, come on in, jog in, jog in, get set, et cetera. Um, just wouldn't listen. Just wouldn't listen. So, so I just said, Hey, so I shouted and said product because he was, he had so much gel in his hair and, and uh, he, he looked quite fancy, kind of like an <laughs> Irish Ronaldo. And uh, the players, the candidates, the, the boy, his name was Chris, um, they lost it and they loved it. And so the session went from pretty average to bang, one of, one of the best sessions on the day. And uh, it was incredible. So like, I, I think when it, when it comes to language, like I really do think you have to be yourself and, and I do think you have to, you know, challenge people and try to get, try to get a rise out of people, you know, from time to time. And in that particular case, it worked, thank God. Um, but I think language is important and, and I'm not opposed. I'm also not opposed to, to having a well-timed swear, because I think sometimes you can get your point across in just one word. And uh, I'm, I'm not opposed to that. Um, I think, I think a lot of people could roast me on that, but, um, no, but I, that's, but I, that's interesting that you say that because I, I actually believe that and I've done it. Mark will have witnessed it. It's, it's all about the appropriate timing of it and the context of it and that it's not your main modem of delivery that every now and then there is a time and a place, you know, to speak in a particular manner. And a lot of it is down to that just consistency. So that when players hear that, they realize, okay, we deserve that. And and you're not just doing it all the time because then people tune out. But if you're just consistent in terms of what's expected in the environment in the first instance, and what are the consequences for not delivering in, the, in that environment, then I think it's reasonable that, that players will then accept that you're going to treat them like that. And, and they respond to it better. They actually probably respect it more. So, but it's again, a little bit like what we've often talked about with things, a little bit of trial and error, finding what works for your players in that particular context. But certainly there are times, you know, when you do have to speak firmly and forcefully, and, and I've no problem with that. You know, again, it's just about delivering the message effectively. You know, and once you're, you're not abusing anybody, that's, that's where you got to draw the line, you know? Yeah. And it, and, it, and it would never be in jest. It would never be at somebody. Um, uh, but you know, if it, it's something that like, I, I, I firmly believe that if, if it's well-timed, it's, it's okay. I think it comes um, with experience though, Mark, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's understanding your audience. So there's obviously, it's always going to be age appropriate. Um, and it's also, it's also, as you, you said earlier on, it's about you being true to yourself. So if that's how you normally are known to converse or, that, or, or, or talk that way, it doesn't become something that the players go, oh, hang on, that's yeah. that's a bit inappropriate. So it's, again, you being true to yourself, age appropriate. But also, like, I mean, once it's not anyway disrespectful or pulling someone out over something else, yeah, I, I, think, I think certain players react to that more than others. And again, that goes back to what we were saying about those soft skills about it's it's understanding different. It's in, you touched on it earlier on, Mark. About I think I think the modern coach has to be a teacher. He has to understand how people learn different ways. Yeah. Some yeah. of our players are very visual. Some some are ego driven. ego or task driven. Just give me the list and tell me what I need to do. Tell me where I need to go and I'll do that for you and I'll do it brilliantly. Others need to be ego. You're brilliant. I need to get to do this and need to that. So like, I mean, it's, it's different styles and that's what the modern coach and modern is a teacher. 
it's about passing that knowledge on. It, it's a massive challenge. It really is. And, and as you said, Mark, I think that's a really good point. A lot of it comes with experience and, and just having good people around you then also to self check and sense check what you're doing and how you're delivering i know if i ever do anything that you know uh, the likes of mark or willie or paul or mick or anyone who works with me says no i think that's inappropriate they'll call me out on it and i think that's a good healthy relationship to have with people so it's keeping your delivery in check so look that's a challenge uh, as is as is what you've just talked about mark Um, i might move you on to ask so we're, we're obviously based in ireland have done the vast majority of our coaching in ireland uh, what else do you see as, as the biggest challenges in relation to coaching in, in Canada currently? Well, like, like I said earlier, um, Canada is a country that has five time zones. Um, so in, I'm, I believe I'm in no position to, to talk about the rest of the country, um, only Vancouver and, and perhaps even just the lower mainland of, of British Columbia. Um, so the challenges I believe Canada faces um, would be geography and climate. Okay, Vancouver, not so much climate, um, sim- simply because we can we can play outside year round. Essentially, you know, we have about a week, a week or two of snow, um, but but that's about it. Um, but the rest of the country um, is covered in snow. Um, so in Vancouver, we we're very special and, and very grateful for that um, from a footballing standpoint. Right. Um, uh, I would say financial investment would be the second one, simply because I, I think, particularly in the women's game. Like our, our Langara College doesn't even have a field. Um, so we actually have to rent city pitches um, and, and train sometimes outside of actually Vancouver, sometimes in Richmond, sometimes at Burnaby and, and just across across the lower mainland, unfortunately. Right. Um, I'm really trying to work on the college on, on building a facility on that. Um, and then lastly, I would say opportunity for coaches. Um, right. There's a lot of part-time positions, a lot of volunteer positions, but there, it's, it's very rare to have a full-time position, which is something I believe a lot of Irish coaches can understand. Oh, that, that resonates. It, apart from the snow, we, we rarely see snow. We, we might see snow every 10 years. But, well, hang on uh, now. We started the first <laughs> week of preseason and got snowed off after one night. <laughs> That's actually true, which is crazy. But, um, but certainly, certainly, it's probably very different to what you get. Yeah, the, 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 the piece about funding absolutely resonates. You know, when you look at, uh, we're fortunate to work in a club that that has some very well-resourced, good supporters and sponsors. And in fact, have just recently uh, announced a deal that sees them link up with one of the prominent universities in, in Dublin. And, and that has given the club a base for the next 18 years, which is incredible. But not everybody's that fortunate. And, and it's common in the League of Ireland that people do, you know, struggle to get areas to train in. And, and even in your academy, you have you know, multiple teams training in multiple venues. And like, that's not ideal in terms of just building that identity and whole brand of your academy. Certainly we've had a number of guests on in series one from the women's game in Ireland and, and that funding message rang through that it's a problem here as well. And definitely the whole thing about opportunity for coaches in Ireland is a problem because we've, we've tons of people, never more people coming through FEI coach ed and getting qualified, which can be only be good for the players. But a lot of these people, you know, invest a lot of time and effort and money in doing this. And there's not many full-time job opportunities in Ireland. There's loads of part-time stuff. There's loads of free work if you want it. And and people sometimes use that to go and, you know, earn their stripes on the grass. And and that's great. It it has its place. 
But I mean, in terms of making a living out of the game in Ireland, there are limited opportunities. There's not many of the teams in the Premier Division even who are full-time or in the First Division. So yeah, it, it is a challenge here as well. So that definitely resonates uh, with me uh, in terms of, of what the situation is like in Canada. It sounds very, very similar. You know, you know I, 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 feel, I feel like I could also comment on on the difference and in, in the the culture shock that I experienced coming, going from, you know, the U S to Canada, uh, particularly at the university level, um, simply because at the NCAA level, you know, we're talking about six figure scholarship mm-hmm. deals. Um, and that certainly was, that certainly was my experience as a, as a dual sport athlete um, at nice. the NCAA division one level. Um, but, you know, when I, when I first moved to Vancouver, um, I coach at the university of British Columbia and the investment was nothing like the States. Um, and, and so I, I, I really do feel the main difference between the two countries is, is simply if we care about, if, if Americans care about something enough, they will put dollars behind it. Yeah. And um, I, I think Canadians, although they really care about their football, the financial investment isn't following. Um, and, and so I, I, do, I do consider that a major challenge. And, and I hope, you know, somehow in some way we can, we can put some, you know, put, uh, put our money where our mouth is. That's really interesting. Um, I mean, I was very lucky. I brought a team from Ireland over to Florida to play um, in a little mini tournament I had kind of put together with IMG Academy. Yeah. Um, and, and I just, having seen some Premier League and Scottish Premier League academies, I was just blown away. I couldn't get I just could not get over. I mean, I, IMG is a bit different though, Mark, because IMG, you know, some of the residents on, some, some of the student athletes and, and residents of, of that campus they're paying, I believe, $70,000 a year. And the rest. But I think but the, the other thing was, even when you drive around from Florida, around IMG, so where I, I go I go regularly there on holidays to a place called Anna Maria, and I love it. But even when you drive around and you see the high schools, or we would call them secondary schools, and you're looking at their facilities, and I'm going, sweet baby Jesus, like, what's going on here? So I always go to some of these games, like on a Friday night, um, some of the, the high school games and the American football games are, or, or even some of the some of the, the the basketball or baseball, and I'm just blown away. But I think you're completely right. You're spot on. The one thing about Americans, I always find, and, and I'm not being in any way um, disrespectful here, if they're into something, they're into it 100. percent And the parents are, what am I going to do to get little Timmy to be the best of that? So how much do I need to invest? How am I going to do that? And how what's that going to look like? And I do, and I, I've, I've spoke to a, of a lot of friends out in America, and I'd be interested to get your viewpoint on this as regards. Uh, lady soccer over there I wonder are they missing out on players who because they can't afford to play that sport and that's why their female teams have done so well but their male teams haven't on an international stage because it's only those who have the dollar that can actually get to play soccer at a really high level whereas the street footballer is excluded. Let me let me start off by saying, you know, I, I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth. So, you know, the the multi sport athletes that you have of today, um, it was ex- it was it was still expensive when I was a when I was a young boy, you know, playing travel soccer, and and it was difficult for my mom, my 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 mom who was a single mom, um, to pay the fifteen hundred dollars a year that it was to 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 play soccer, and so I had to make a make a choice, and you know, I don't I don't think you have that today. But I, you know, you fast forward about 20 years and I really do believe it, it has, it has really become a white collar sport and it's, it's not for say the working communities anymore. And, and that's where I think, you know, there's a strong push in Canada to privatize 
football academies and and I, I would just caution Canada on that um, as much as you can caution a, a country. I would Being caution political Canada on that. statement. I like that, Mark. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I would caution Canada on that simply because I don't, I don't want Canada to be the states when it comes down to the pay-to-play system yeah. because it, it, it can get nasty and competitive, and then so values are thrown out the window because it's because it's superseded by business business principles. And we all know what business is about. Business is defined as, and this isn't my quote, war without the rules. So, yeah. you know, for for me, for for me, like I. I hope what we have learned from the pandemic, at least in Vancouver, is we need each other. Yeah. And, and I'm afraid, you know, in the coming years that there's going to be a death of the grassroots club where, where fees are very low. I believe they can be as low as $100 to $300 a year. Um, still, I believe that's expensive in, in Ireland. Um, but, but I hope we can get back to the grassroots feeling um, and, and find a more, you know, where you get a sense of community and, and you're not paying so much money out of pocket where, where you're not letting, you know, the people that can't afford it play. Mm-hmm. So you have, yeah. a, you have a huge marginalized group that simply just can't afford the sport. And I, I would hope, I, I would really hope that the grassroots, grassroots clubs can find a sustainable way to, to reach the professionalism as, as well as get qualified and dedicated professional coaches within the club. Because otherwise, otherwise they're run by volunteer coaches that... that You're spot on, Mark. I think it's a conversation we have privately about... Um, it's about that trade-off. Do you want to do it because your own son or daughter is playing and you get involved and then you want to go make yourself better? But at what point do you... Does it become commercially viable that you do this? Um, I think there's lots of... I, 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 got, I haven't told Gav this, but we're going to do an episode on the economics of sport one day and I, I'll have you back for that because I just think there's... I think when you look at the money at the top levels of the game, it's obscene. But the smaller clubs, and I'm very lucky that I'm associated with the club that we're in who have taken a different approach and how that they fund and how they do things. But the economics of football and the economics of sport is changing at an alarming rate. And I just, I just hope it's not going to be at the detriment of the actual sport itself. We've discussed an awful lot of your code. We've discussed, like, I mean, all your, your, your positions, how you've uh, you've and you've touched on the women's game. We've had a lot of comments. Um, we've had a couple of guests touch on it in Ireland, and um, especially people like Graham Kelly and Lisa Fallon about, I don't know, I suppose the double standards sometimes and how the talent is here, but the resources and the investment isn't. What's it like in Canada? Um, because I, and I asked that question because Canada, North America, I know there's an awful lot of Irish kids would have aspirations of going and playing out there and would see it as a fantastic opportunity. But it'd be interested to get your thoughts on how the women's game in Canada is progressing or what's it, what it's like. Yeah. It's specific to the collegiate game. I, I have, I have only a year experience with that. Um, but, but what I do know is that um, it needs to be backed financially, number one. Um, and, and number two, if we really promote the collegiate game, um, hopefully one day that we can have a professional women's league in Canada. Now there recently is the, the, the men's Premier League. Um, so hopefully, hopefully the women's side can, can piggyback off that and, and really produce something. Now, what I can say about Langara College is, is simply this, is our chief aim is to push the women's game forward in Canada. And, and in one way that we've doing that is we, I, I, I was able to build a, a nice little background staff and I have um, a head of sports science and medicine who has experience working with the Canadian women's national team for, for field hockey, um, as well as a doctorate in, 
in physiology. So he's, he's educated, he's experienced, but then most importantly, he has a skill set to connect with the players as well. Um, and I think we're, we are pushing the game forward very rapidly you know, within that, within, within the sports science department. And we're going to be challenging certainly not only the, the college system, but then the university system above that simply by having qualified staff in place that can, that can monitor the, the data um, and the metrics um, that we capture from a day to day. Right. Sounds progressive, which is good. Just on that, what, what do you monitor kind of day to day? What kind of information is the kind of stuff that helps you make better decisions. Yeah, so um, some some of the metrics, and, and this this goes far beyond just on field. Um, we we track sleep patterns. Um, we track you know timing of nutrition um, and, and meals. Um, also, you know we'll, we'll we'll get players iron as well. Um, I think that's a common practice in the women's game in in terms of heart rate and sprints and accelerations and you know distance covered. Those those very common things. But the difference is is we're using a specific study that the sports scientist is published on and essentially what it does is it within every exercise he assigns different a point system to it so if it's 100 points and the session so these exercises are maybe 100 points each or 200 points each etc the sports scientist will tell me okay mark like you design your session based off of uh, a 800 to a thousand point model. Okay. So we know exactly what, which exercise is taxing for the players and which, which ones are more recovery based. Um, right. So yeah. That, so I have the freedom to, to pick and choose what I see from a football standpoint. And um, it's a very unique way of going about physical loading. And it's um, I, I believe something revolutionary. And, and like I said, um, uh, Dr. Parada is, is published in this. Okay, you can have more details on that. <laughs> that is that is interesting stuff. But look, in in the interest of time, I'll, I'll move along. So between traveling all around the world, doing your coaching, between your three jobs, and you're you're clearly busy, which is great to hear. What do you do if you get any downtime? Do you have any any guilty pleasures? Well, well, well I I have two daughters and a two and a half year old and a three month old, and I I love I, I love being a girl dad. And, um, you know, particularly with the toddler, um, we're doing a lot of science experiments. Um, so we do the, the Coke and Mentos geyser was the latest one. Nice. And I, I find that, uh, re-energizing and, um, uh, but I also like my alone time, of course, uh, as, as I believe everyone does. And I think it's very important to, especially as a coach to have alone time. Um, yeah. so I do from time to time, I like to read books, but then also, also do some yoga, uh, and typically, cool. t- typically it's the, the corpse pose and that's essentially it. So all, all, all you do is you lay down. <laughs> uh, I'm very so, good at the dead fish one. Dead fish <laughs> one. Yeah, no, I'd be good at that one as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I like it. You yeah. mentioned books there. What, what's the best book you've read recently? Uh, the Inner Game of Tennis. Oh, have you, what's that have you read that book? Nope. Yeah. That's a new one. I haven't heard that one. It's it's a it's a quick read. Steve Kerr, a former Chicago Bull, uh, recommends yeah, it. I like him. Like him. Pete Carroll from the Seattle Seahawks. Yeah, um, big fan of him. Yeah. Um, so essentially, what it says is: stop being so judgmental on technique. Stop saying good. Stop saying, "Hey, this is good. This is bad," and, and going through the detail with players um, about it. Because what it does is it, it takes them out of their state of flow, and state of flow is childlike behavior. So, and childlike behavior would be there's no concept of time. So. Essentially, what it says is, if if you're truly in a state of flow, the technique will come. 
But if you're constantly thinking about, oh, that was a terrible mistake, or, you know, I need to make sure my, my entry on this pass or, or my execution on this first touch or, or my exit my, and my follow through on this shot is, is, you know, wasn't good enough, then, then you're, con- then you're, you're going to be in, you're not going to be in a present moment and you're not going to be in a state of flow. And it, it, it hurts that. Coach um, the moment. Absolutely. And um, yeah, exactly. I, I think that's, I think that's really good for life as well. So what would you, what would your, what would your, given your vast experience and your three jobs and, and moving hats all the time, what would you say your coaching session or your coaching topic, your go-to one that never fails? What is it? What does it look like? Well, I'm a big believer in, in setting a high performance culture right away and, and very specific to what the team values are. And, and really there's only one session that you can do that with and it's, it's pressing. So if you, if you want, if you want work ethic, with the right combination of, of being poised and disciplined, you, you need to do a, you need to do a pressing session. Um, nice. You know, so how, how we, how we assess pressing is, is, is essentially three things. Okay. Mm-hmm. Desire, desire and tenacity slash tenacity, knowledge of, of the press. And then third, the speed of the press. Okay. Cause some, sometimes you'd actually, Hey, you're going to confront the opposition, but then you're actually going to drop off. So then you're going to be poised and disciplined. And then once, once they get to a certain point, then, then you showcase your tenacity. I like that. I like that. That's a really good way of framing it. It's funny because I, someone said to me recently, our player I was talking to recently, I said, I, I will probably learn more about you as a player and what you're doing, you know, off the ball in how your team is set. So if it is the press, you probably learn more about the player looking at them executing that than anything else they'll do on the ball, you know? So I, I like the way you frame that. I, I also like coaching attacking topics, um, particularly in, in, our, in our attacking half. Um, so, so not necessarily build up, even though I like coaching build up, but you know, the connection slash preparing to finish phase is something that I've, I've learned a lot about recently. You know, we have a new director of methodology and, um, uh, he's, you know, he's, he's out of Italy and, and he's been tremendous just in my own, um, knowledge of the game, but, um, you know, we're talking about whatever system that you're in three, four, two, one, or, or four, two, three, one, four, three, three, like, as the ball travels in there, hey, who's the first movement? Who's who's gonna who's gonna lead it? Who's gonna be the followers around it? Um, and then, and then really um, really get the timing and rhythm down, um, mm. you know, as you prepare to finish. And I, I've I've really enjoyed that aspect over the last, particularly over the last two years. I have to right. ask you a question: When you played, what position did you play? And there's uh, a reason I got to ask you this. I, I was a wide player. So once upon a time I had an engine and, and I had some, I had some pace. <laughs> the only reason I'm asking this is because every defender I know that played the defense just wants to attack, just wants to coach attacking games. Every, I'm surrounded. No, by- I am. I am. No, I am the, definitely the exception to that rule. I, my favorite coaching topic is defending always will be, but that, that could be the title of your bookmark. I like that. Once upon a time I had an engine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're all, did we all say men and bits of that? Yeah, that's just what my, my wife says, goodness. <laughs> Once upon uh, look, I tell you, we're, we're coming. I tell you, this is brilliant. We can talk all night, but I'm conscious you have to go to work. What, right. So my last I'm question. Quite, so time. <laughs> Before we get into the dream fantasy team, because I'm really, I'm really dying to hear that. Last question I'd like to ask you, and it's a new one for Series 2. What game would you like to have been on the staff for? What a great question. Being from Chicago, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a United States versus Spain. I don't know if you guys remember this. So 2009 Confederation yeah, yeah. Cup, yeah, yeah, 2-0 win. Now, now Spain, <laughs> they were on a 17 game unbeaten streak. Yeah, they were probably due for a loss. Okay, and 
but you know what, we'll, we'll take, we'll take the three points. That's for sure. Um, oh, it's, we actually went on, we actually went on to play Brazil in the Confederation cup in the right, next yeah. match. and, uh, we were up, the U S were up two nil at halftime. Now they lost three, two, <laughs> but we'll take it. We'll take being up against Brazil two nil at halftime. Love that question, Gav. That's a, that's a, that's a cracker of a question for this series. It, it's a new question. Cause I've, I've often taught myself, there's loads of different ways of framing, you know, what's your favorite memory? Who's your favorite player? But as coaches, what is the game you wish you were on the bench for? You were in the staff. So that, that is an absolute cracking answer. And, I like that. Brilliant answer. What a brilliant answer. And, 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 you know, Bob Bradley was obviously the manager of, of the U.S. side when they beat Spain. And, and obviously, you know, with more recent history with him at Swansea, um, he didn't really have a favorable time there. But um, as, a, as a young, aspiring coach, mm-hmm. I, I have no problem saying that Bob Bradley was a pioneer of, a, of American coaches abroad. Oh, and, completely. Um, completely. You know, and, and, I, and I believe that's something that um, a lot of Americans believe. And I, and I, I, hope, I hope Bob Bradley knows that he's a pioneer for a lot of young coaches. And, and um, you know, I, I, th- I think about a coach like Jesse Marsh, uh, you know, a, a coach out of uh, Red Bull Salzburg now, yeah. who, I, who I randomly met in a pub when, when we were at, Bu- when, when we went to Budapest and then into eventually Salzburg. And wow. uh, like, I go, oh, I think I know him. So I introduced <laughs> myself and he's like, oh, he's like, yeah, I think he said something like, you know, fancy Americans are in a pub. <laughs> <laughs> like hey great he's done well for himself it's great to see okay yeah, that's that's brilliant he's actually put his name in the hat or he's bigged himself up because he's uh about the celtic job jesus i would love that to happen I, oh, you might have known but you know mark is a huge celtic fan he tries to drop it in at least twice in every episode mark it's it's been great chatting to you and i really do appreciate you coming on it's it's just been great to to kind of touch base with you again and, and we got to keep in touch because we, we always had good chats when we were on our courses together but a, a final question for you and we we ask it to all our guests who've been on any of the episodes uh, throughout the series is uh, to name your dream fantasy five-a-side team and it's it's your team it can be whoever you want on the team i'm, I'm dying to hear this one so out of respect for both of my citizenships, I went with uh, an American and a Canadian side. Um, so, nice. and also as a, as a head women's coach, I've included women on it. So Brilliant. first and foremost, Christine Sinclair, all-time leading goal scorer, men or women, fantastic player and a very humble person. Fantastic. Um, second would be Mia Hamm. So what a player. Mia- yeah, Mia Hamm was 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 quite a footballer, and uh, you know she grew up playing with her brothers and fantastic goal scorer for for the American side. And um, yeah, superb. I, I I have no shame in saying this, but like as as a young boy, um, and it was the first it was the first time I, I witnessed the United States win a World Cup. Um, yeah, and of yeah. course, of course, all all four World Cups are on the women's side, but um, uh, t- to me that doesn't matter. The country has four stars over its badge. No problem. No problem for that. Um, Absolutely. So, would you? <laughs> so I, yeah. so I, I had no problem as a young boy, and I looked up to Mia Hamm uh, as a young boy. And um, uh, next, uh, Clint Dempsey. Oh, oh. Okay. Good out, have, Clint. And uh, bit next, of a cult hero, actually, in the EP. Yeah, in the yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Was he Fulham, Fulham legend. But Fulham and Tottenham. Tottenham, yeah, yeah. He played at Tottenham as well, right? Cool. But, um, yeah, he's a good player. Uh, and then my my favorite American of all of all time. Uh, Brian McBride. He was he was a, he was a Chicago boy. I, I Chicago loved him. Boy. He was yeah. rough and ready. I liked Absolutely. him. I, I love Brian McBride. Um, uh, I, I met him one time, and his his character and integrity were uh, top class. Great guy. Um, uh, and then 
goalkeeper, Brad Friedel. Oh, what a super, super keeper. Yeah, he, what, a, what a keeper. Probably doesn't get enough credit for how good he was. That guy, he was, did, that he, guy was incredible. Not, not enough credit on the, US, on the U.S. men's national team, that's for sure. Not enough yeah, credit yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. But also, by all accounts, just a very, very good man. Just a really yeah, yeah. good person. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's some team. Give us, give us that five again. So, Friedel, McBride, so, Friedel, Dempsey. McBride, Dempsey, Miaham, Christine um, Sinclair. Oh, so. I like that. that. That's a good side. So that, that we're going to have to get somebody else out to pick another international side to play them. Yeah, in, I just, in a I, virtual competition. <laughs> you know, I, I was I was going to make I was going to put a Ghanaian in there as well. Um, you know, I probably would. Okay, no you can put one on the no bench. No subs. <laughs> you can get your goalkeeper. I don't actually understand why people are putting goalkeepers into these five-a-side teams. Don't need them. Mark, Mark's very strict. You know what I mean? I I would allow you have you know two or three subs, but no, Mark Mark is too strict. <laughs> well, I'll take Friedel off and put SCN on then. There you go. Oh, nice. What a player. Oh, oh, you've, what already a player. Got, you've already your team's already got 20% better. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Mark, that, that is absolutely fantastic, as, as has the rest of our chat been. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, it only remains for myself and Mark to thank you again, wish you well on your onward coaching journey, and, and I hope to see you again in Ireland on your travels. But really, thanks for thanks for giving up your time. Thanks for sharing that knowledge and experience with us. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thanks, mate. Yep, thanks, guys. Well, moving on, folks, uh, every week on the Coach's War Chest, we give you some suggested documentaries or books or coaching resources to check out. So, Mark, what have you got for us this week? I have three things for you this week, Gav. I've got two books. I'm back on books again. So the first book is an old one, but a good one. It's Dan Abrams' book, uh, Soccer Tough, which was probably one of the first books I started reading when I started talking about sports psychology and mental toughness and players and how it related to football. So I've started flicking through that and reading that again and forgot this, there's lots of really good information. There. I think it's, um, it's a good book for a lot of coaches, even if they wanted to get an understanding and a start on what all that terminology looks like and what it means. Uh, the second book is a new one. It's called The Captain's Class. The Hidden Forces or The Hidden Force Behind the World's Greatest uh, leaders and captains it's by a guy called sam walker and it's, it's really interesting um, it's a book that it's a couple of years old but this guy devised this kind of formula on what a good captain or a leader looks like and he went through a lot of english premiership nfl lots of kind of obscure sports and kind of put together what that looked like and documented it and it's really good it's an interesting rate it gets a lot of really good reviews as well but it's just something different to look at and it's just a different way at looking at things and i like the fact that it's kind of it references and evidence based some of the best captains or leaders in sport and how it works across so everything, verbal communication, how people put their language and use and what kind of, how they hold themselves as captain, some of the non-negotiable. So yeah, very, very interesting. And the Great. other thing I thought, just as a coaching resource for people out there, um, and I'm, I, I put my hand up as well, I know the guy quite well that, that works there. There's a thing called uh, Sports Career Agency that do coaching CVs um, and also advertised positions worldwide. But anybody who has done all their badges and is serious about getting some kind of employment in, in the game could do worse than touch base with these guys and see what they do. It's a paid service, to, um, but they'll help you put together a CV for if you're looking for a position in sport. Fantastic. Yeah, really worth checking out. Yeah, I've won myself. Um, I'm listening to uh, A Tribe of Mentors on Audible. It's by Tim Ferriss. Very interesting concept. He has 11 questions that he asks everybody that he meets. So he sent out the 11 questions to about 250 people 
about 150 people responded. And the book is essentially all these people from very, very different, like and diverse backgrounds from the world of entertainment, sport, business, academia, all answering the same 11 questions and, and just getting their slants on, on stuff. So very, very interesting, actually, um, just some kind of thought provoking stuff in the answers. So, yep. Brilliant stuff, Mark. Uh, fantastic. The coaches war chest. We, we'll certainly start to tweet it out, I think, after the episodes now, because lots of interest in the in the stuff that you're recommending. So well done, mate. Some coaching shout outs for the week now. Um, this week, a shout out to Split Boy Benny, Bernard Byrne, recently appointed to the DDSL company at St. Joseph's. Uh, shout out to Keith Kelly uh, at Keith Kelly 97. Keith is the founder of Jumpers for Goalposts. Uh, I know we've we've mentioned them regularly on the show. Looking forward to catching up at their next event, whenever that is. Um, another shout out to Mick Healy at Mick H77. Uh, just a consistent, great supporter of the show. Thanks for the support, Mick. Um, and a special shout out to at PeaceJewie103 to Paul Stewart. Um, just thanks for the courage for sharing your story in relation to football's darkest secrets. Uh, sent Paul some messages during the week and he was kind enough to respond. So I, I think what those guys are doing, shining a light on that problem is, is absolutely amazing. So well done. That's it, folks. The end of the second episode of season two. My thanks as always to the lads, Mark, Paul, Willie and Mick for sharing their vast knowledge and experiences. Cheers also to Mark Eckerly for joining us from Canada tonight. We're really looking forward to getting over and visiting them sometime. Maybe we'll do an outside broadcast from Vancouver. Thanks as always to our new friends of the show and our sponsors, PlayerStat Data. Uh, it's really appreciated, lads, that you've come on board and we've really enjoyed our interactions with you. Continued success with what you guys are doing. Finally, thanks as ever to all of the brilliant coaches out there for your own continued dedication to your players. Please give our pod a follow and help us spread the word don't forget to leave us comments so we can improve how we help you in your coaching journey. Get in touch with us as ever at Coaching Badges on Twitter. And remember, when it comes to coaching, there's no right or wrong way, but there's always a better way. <laughs>